Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here, of course, with Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, let's turn in this episode to the threat from terrorism that we saw first on display in Paris, then right here in the United States in San Bernardino. That latter attack, the most deadly one on American soil since 9-11. Amongst people who uh, downplay the attacks, which isn't to say necessarily that they deny their significance, but there is this notion out there. We heard it after the Boston Marathon bombings too and it, and it runs roughly as follows. But look, these things, they don't happen in the U.S. all that often in terms of sophistication and casualties. There's nothing approaching the scale of 9-11. And while, yes, you of course want to stop everything, it's probably inevitable that some of these things are going to fall through the cracks. But what does get through, it's not the kind of elaborate plots that we thought were going to become a regular occurrence after 9-11. Anything about that line of thought consoling to you? Uh, no. And there's uh, two reasons why they're not consoling. One is that there's a great deal of doubt about uh, confining the San Bernardino, Chattanooga, Boston Marathon attacks to just the scale of damage they've inflicted so far. So what I mean by that is had the Sarnaev brothers had two or three more accomplices or had the San Bernardino people not been killed but apparently had gone to their larger target – you're, it's not inconceivable that you could, in each one of these instances, and we've had about 50 since 9-11, you could kill not four, 19, 18, two, wound 250 like the Boston Marathon, but kill a lot more. And second, uh, the modus operandi of San Bernardino in rough terms is similar to 9-11, that Muslim resident aliens, in this case, Ms. Malik, uh, were under the radar as if they had no hostility toward the United States and they were blending in with American popular culture, popular life, and they were indistinguishable why in the midst of all that, that stealth, they were trying to kill Americans. So we haven't changed, uh, that hasn't changed. There's people from the Middle East who come over here and don't like the United States or come here with a dislike of the United States and they want to kill people and they're very hard to root out because uh, of, that we're a tolerant, compassionate, open society. We've talked a lot in the past about national will, cultural will when it comes to this topic. There was a sense, for instance, about a year and a half ago that when the ISIS beheading started, this sort of retiring impulse that had characterized how Americans thought about foreign policy during the Obama years began to erode. Any sense now that we're hitting another inflection point that Americans are starting to approach these issues differently than they would have maybe just a month or two ago? Oh, I think so because from this – I think it really started with a Charlie Hebdo attacks this summer in Paris and then the recent 130 – that were killed uh, in Paris and then San Bernardino, but more importantly, the attitude of the president. He had a really sense of timing. It seems like he either staged the global warming right after the attacks in Paris and claimed that was the world's greatest challenge right now, or he said right on the eve of the San Bernardino attacks that there was nothing like planned for America, or he'd said before the Paris attacks that ISIS had been contained. So it's the mixture that we've had these attacks in the West all of a sudden, and then the apparent disdain 
uh, by the President of the United States, or even worse, the politicalization of it, where he seems to connect them with gun control or right-wing violence or extremist violence, and he's incapable of identifying it with radical Islam. Victor, Donald Trump ran up against a media firestorm when he suggested that we should consider temporarily suspending all Muslim immigration to the U.S. until we could get our arms around this problem. What, what do you make of the reaction to the, that proposal and what role do you think immigration policy might have in figuring out how you tackle this problem? Well, Donald Trump made a mistake because he identified people generically by religion and of course we know that the vast majority of Muslims are not uh, designing or approving of an attack on, on what would be their own country. But that doesn't mean that people who were recent immigrants from the Middle East or second generation immigrants, that is American citizens, who go back and forth between the Middle East uh, don't have those ideas. So what we really need to do is say for 90 days, let's have a timeout from specific countries, Iraq, Syria, Jordan, the West Bank, um, Iran, and until we understand how to vet these people, because Ms. Malika basically was d defiantly open, transparent about her hatred to the United States on Facebook, and this is the same time she was supposedly, the administration tells us, vetted carefully before she was given a visa. So I think we're, whatever we're doing is not effective, and we need to just take a time out and do it by country, and then it's not directed at any particular religious or ethnic group. Foreign policy, coming back to the fore, has exposed some sort of interesting fissures in the Republican Party. Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio have really been in the forefront of this discussion, and I probably can't characterize their respective views concisely without running the risk of oversimplifying them a little, but Cruz is essentially trying to position himself as the realist. He's criticized the war in Libya. He's criticized the idea of overthrowing Assad in Syria. He's basically making the case that we don't need to worry so much about building democracies or spreading freedom around the world. We just need to protect our national security interests narrowly defined. Uh, Rubio, on the other hand, a little more inclined to say that regime-type matters, a little more inclined to say that we have to defend our values in addition to our interests. What do you make of that debate and does one of those cases strike you as imminently more reasonable than the other? Well, they each have uh, red lines that they can't cross. For Rubio, it's we can't go over and build democracy um, rather than just be punitive and, and stop the problem and then contain it and go home. So if he says he's going to engage in a multi-decade democracy project, even though that we have done that before successfully, that's not uh, possible in a political sense. And at the same time, Cruz has to be careful because when he says that uh, we shouldn't do that, does that rhetoric turn isolationist in the sense that we're not going to be forward and we're not going to go after people in a preemptory fashion overseas? And so if Rubio is dubbed a neoconservative, which apparently is a taboo word, and if Cruz is dubbed an isolationist, then they're both in trouble and somewhere in between – what was fascinating about that exchange in the debate is they really didn't seem that they they were that far apart. At least they were always they were arguing against each other for what one or the other allegedly had said, but no one was openly opposing the other on what they were saying at that moment. Is what I'm getting at. There was a consensus on the stage, and the debate re, uh, rested on the theory that there had not been a consensus in the past.
You mentioned there a moment ago that we have been successful at democracy promotion efforts in the past. What do you think is the distinction between those efforts and today where it just seems like we always come up short on that front? Well, I think the problem is that uh, it's not that George Bush went into Iraq, but let's let's play a what if. What had what would have happened if when Barack Obama uh, entered office in which the casualty rate in Iraq was smaller or less than the accident rate per month in the U.S. military? What if he had just kept by his own rhetoric that he was seeking a stable, secure, self-reliant Iraq and our Joe Biden's that it was the administration's possibly greatest achievement and he had not taken troops out of Iraq at 2011. And then what we would have had, I think, is a contrast between the mess in Libya that was that Obama owned himself, that is sort of go in, bomb somebody, don't get involved, don't go on the ground and get out versus the Bush alternative of going in and working with a country and creating something viable. But because he got out of Iraq, he rendered it like Libya. And then he disguised his tracks in Libya and basically said, you know, I, I don't want to talk about it. So he's discredited the idea that you could go in and after you take out a regime, stay there and then eventually stabilize the country without further not a lot of cost in blood and treasure. We were not losing Americans, in other words, in 2011 in Iraq, but we were saving a lot of lives and we were uh, taking that country off the terrorist table, so to speak, in a way that Libya was still on it. On this front, Victor, we don't need to get into names here. In fact, I think it might be more instructive if we don't. But most of our listeners are probably aware of your criticisms of President Obama as a foreign policy leader. When it comes to his successor, what are the traits you're looking for on those issues? What are the qualities you'd want in a good commander-in-chief for this point in American history? Well, we're talking about foreign policy. It is the, the first thing you have to do is if you look at what Roosevelt said about the Japanese or what Truman said about the North Koreans or what uh, Nixon said about the North Vietnamese or what Clinton said about Milosevic and uh, the Balkan thugs, you have to be able to tell the American people that there's particular people in the world, a Noriega, a Saddam Hussein, a Gaddafi, whoever they are, and they're out, outside the post-war order. And you have to identify who they are and what they want to do and how they want to do it. The problem we have right now and what we don't want in the next chief executive is we don't have a president who can say – these are radical Islamicists who have a particular view of how Islam can exist in the modern world and it's antithetical to the post-war order and they believe that that exalted end requires any means necessary to achieve it, which are death and destruction to Westerners. And this is intolerable and so we're going to do the following things and then tell us uh, in at least a vague, uh, a general way. But what he does instead is he doesn't outline any strategy. He doesn't tell us who the enemy is. And then uh, when he's under criticism, he gets backed into a corner and then he has this braggadocio, which is really dangerous. He says, you know, Iran can't enrich any more uranium after the first year. Iran, Iran has to open up to inspections before the G20. Syria has a – if they start moving stuff around, that's a red line. If Putin goes into – 
uh, Ukraine, that's a step over line. Um, Putin is like a class cut up in the uh, back of the, the room. Put, into a ma- uh, Putin's into a macho shtick. Uh, these guys are what we call around here. When we, when we look at these guys, we don't think they're Kobe Bryant. We just call them JVs. That loose, um, sloppy talk uh, masks a sense of indecision and inferiority. And it, it overcompensates with this, as I said, this braggadocio, which is really unhelpful. We need to stop talking and carrying a small stick and keep quiet and carry a big stick. And we're doing the, you know, we're not doing that. So the last thing I'll ask you then, with that in mind, we're talking about a year from now, actually a little bit more, when a new president gets sworn in. Take me through the the year in between. I mean, what what is in prospect for us on the foreign policy front, operating under the assumption, which I think is. I think it's a safe one that we're not going to see any serious change in how President Obama conducts himself on foreign affairs. What does the next year look like in terms of potential threats? Well, I'm very worried. I think it's the most dangerous year since 1945 because all of these regional players, if you read what they're saying in their internal media inside their countries, to the degree we know that, have nothing but contempt for us. And if you look at the Pew poll, for example, in the Middle East, Key countries, Jordan, Palestine, Pakistan, Turkey, we're very unpopular, even though these are countries that we reached out and are current recipients of foreign aid. So I think what we're going to see is that Iran is going to completely nullify its commitments under this accord, this non-treaty they've made with us, and they're going to become a regional hegemony. That's what Obama thought basically when he said that they could be a legitimate regional power. I think China, vis-a-vis the South China Sea or Japan or Taiwan or Philippines or South Korea and, and Russia with the former republics, all of these countries see that the United States is not the United States as they knew it the last 70 years. And there's going to be a window of opportunity where they can make facts on the ground that are going to be very hard to restore for the next president. In other words, if they move on a particular country or a particular region or they build, build bases like the Chinese are doing, then it it's incumbent upon the next president to stop that, but that would be seen as dangerous, aggressive, preemptory, preventive war. And so they know that. And so they want to create a new status quo uh, in the next 12 months. And they've done, I shouldn't say just the next 12 months. Nobody in their right mind would have thought that Iran would be such a power uh, seven years ago, or nobody thought the Middle East would be a wasteland like it is now, or nobody would thought that Russia once we'd heard the reset proclamations, would be doing what it is now in Chechnya and, and, and Ukraine and, and Syria. So I think it's really dangerous. They, they're looking they're looking at 75 years of post-war history and they're saying, you know what, if you're ever going to change the existing world order, now's the time to do it. All right. All topics that I'm sure we're going to be taking up again in 2016 when we invite our listeners to join us for future installments of the Classicist Podcast. In the meantime, you should stop by hoover.org where you can read all of Professor Hansen's commentary. We'll see you back here soon. For Victor Davis Hansen and the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.